0: What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success in and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys I was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad, there's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. Okay, welcome back, Nightmare Success, In and Out listeners. It's where you come to hear what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality. How do you adapt, survive, overcome, set yourself free? Um, I've got a really interesting story here today with my guest, Lark Hodge, and she sent me something, and it was it was her attorney talking about her case, and. I think all I could think when I was watching this was oh my god wow I can't believe this and you know it's it's also an interesting story about you know what when you go to trial what's admissible what's not admissible and how that can actually change what the jury would have done, and and there were when I listened to this, there were jury members that said, "Oh my God, if we would have known that, th- there's no way that this would have come the way it was." And it's, um, and you really don't know that until you actually hear stories like this. But Lark has an incredible story. It's a painful story, but she survived, and her family survived, and her kids survived. And um, so, from that standpoint, I'm really excited to her to tell the story because. How do you handle your worst nightmare? And then how do you survive it? That's this story. Um, I can't wait to unpack all this. Before we do that, I want to recognize our sponsor of the show, Auto Plaza Direct. You know, who likes spending a couple weekends walking the car lot looking for a car? Then you spend four or five hours in the dealership to buy a car? It's kind of like a trip to the dentist. Well, there's a better way to take away all the pain and hassle of getting a car. It's called Auto Plaza Direct. They are your personal car concierge. Just tell them the car you want, what you can pay, and they'll go find that car for you. They'll negotiate your best price. And they also have warranties and financing. It's all full service. Go to autoplazadirect.com to get started with your personal car concierge. The new hassle-free way, the car buying experience you deserve. Autoplaza Direct. Tell them that Brent from Nightmare Success sent you. Welcome in, Lark. How are you doing today?
1: Good. How are you? Thank
0: you for having me. Well, I am... Uh, very honored to have you on the show. I, um, I really been looking forward to this because there's a couple of things that, you know, about your story that just grip you, but the fact that you got the outcome that you had, you still went in and you fought through and your family made it through. Um, and now you're out and you haven't been out very long. You we were just talking as August 20th. What's that been like yeah. for you to be out August
1: 20th? Um, it's been a whirlwind, definitely. I think since stepping out of prison, I've been on go. Um, I have two small kids, so um, I stepped right into motherhood and right into being a wife and right into being a business owner, and it's just been crazy
0: (laughs) that's what it sounded like what you told me i mean you're on a farm you've got all this stuff going on you got a nine and eight year old your husband everything and, and you actually have only been out a little over a month and um like i said it feels like you're jumping in a moving car when you get out and that feeling lasts for a while you you just uh you take it all in but it feels like it's moving really fast so lark definitely. Let's go back so everybody can get to know you a little bit. Um, what about lark growing up did you parents siblings what was like life life like for you as a kid being Lark Hodge? Okay.
1: So I um was born in New Orleans, Louisiana um, and my mom and my dad were together until I was about five and they split up. Um, my mom got remarried to my stepdad and we lived in New Orleans until Hurricane Katrina. Um, we actually stayed during the storm in Memorial Hospital and then was evacuated to the convention center and then evacuated out of there. And, that um, had to be scary,
0: right? As a kid, how old were oh, you then? Absolutely,
1: been? I was 10.
0: Oh gosh. I mean, I, I remember yeah. that so well cause it was just, you know, national news night after night after night and you know, the destruction and despair and people, you know, scattered you know, from Texas to wherever. Um, I can't imagine what, as a kid, what you would have been thinking.
1: Yeah, it was, it was definitely terrible. The storm itself wasn't bad and we were in a hospital. Um, My mom was a nurse there. So we stayed there and we watched the storm came come in and it busted a couple of windows and then it kind of went away and it was cool. I have like one really vivid memory of my dad taking me out onto um, the top floor and we looked out and all the power in New Orleans was out so you could see the Milky Way. Wow. Um, well, then the next morning when we're thinking, okay, it's time to, you know, get out of here. That's when the levees broke. But we didn't know what was happening because we don't have cell phones there's no tv everybody's radio is dead at this point and all we can see is the water rising Mm -hmm. rapidly and um we have no idea what's going on um well eventually someone found out that the levees had been broken and um they were going to start doing emergency evacuations of the patients. so um my dad was helping getting patients life-flighted out of the hospital, and then we kind of just were stuck there for a while. They didn't really think about, like, you know, nurses and their families or doctors and their families, and as a nurse there, you couldn't leave until all your patients were gone. Um, so once my mom was able to get all the patients gone, we had heard a rumor that there was going to be airboats to take us out to um, Chapatula Street and meet be met by charter buses. Well, we got there and there was no charter buses. <laughs> um, so eventually we had made our way to the convention center and it was crazy. My mom's friend that worked at the hospital, her husband was part of a SWAT team in two parishes over. And she had a satellite phone and was able to get in touch with him. And he brought in like two school buses and it was all these nurses and we all ran in the middle of the night to the school buses, loaded on the school buses and hauled butts. Um, Sounds like a movie. Psychiatric hospital. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. My dad actually wrote a book about it, and um, it was insane. And at ten years old, like you really don't understand the volume of what's going on. Um, but like as I look back on it, I just like. Looking back on life, period. Like, I've gone through so much, but I think, like, New Orleans is definitely the start of, <laughs>
0: start of a rollercoaster. The crazy.
1: Yeah. yeah. But we bounced around a lot after the storm, and we finally settled in um, northeast Florida. And um, I went to high school there and um, started having kids. And um, I was going to college for radiology, but I ended up um, getting a job at the Omni in Amelia Island. So I stopped going to college because I was making money, decent money, good money, mm-hmm. um, and it was in a nice part of the town. And um, that's kind of when, like, my life—I thought my life was going great, right? And God always has. other Seems things Seems like that's when it hits,
0: right? It's like it can't get any better than this, and then boom, yeah. you get blindsided.
1: I'm like living great. I'm like 20 years old, and. Making more than my dad's making as a professor, like <laughs> crazy. And so I meet the sommelier and I'm like, Oh, I'm really interested in this. I love the study of wine. I don't really like, um, I don't like the feeling of being drunk, but I enjoy the taste and knowing like the varietal or where it's, you know, all the different things that wine entails. So he offers me a job in Dallas, Texas. And to apprentice underneath him and eventually try to be a level one song. And I'm like, great. I go to Texas. I do the job, formal job interview. I get the job and I'm supposed to be moving within 11 days to Texas. <laughs> I get in a car accident. And that's where this whole thing starts.
0: Okay. Well, let's unpack this nightmare because I've heard it, but I haven't heard it from you on how it all happened. But It was, it sounded like it was, and I don't even know, I can't even remember where you were coming from, but it was a dark road. And can you just walk us through what happened that night?
1: Okay. So, um, I was working, I probably worked like a 16 hour shift that night. I was on my way home like normal, two o'clock in the morning. Um, and I'm driving. And it's a super dark road down Hexer Drive. Like there's no, at that time, there was no lights. Um, there was construction everywhere. You can barely pass a car. Sometimes I've gone down that road in the middle of the night and not passed one person until I get to the exit of where I was living at, at the time. Well, I don't really have a very, I have no recollection of the actual accident happening. Um, all I know is when I woke up, but obviously I was in a field of debris and um, people around. Me. So
0: you don't even remember um, the crash?
1: Have no recollection whatsoever. I ended up having a traumatic brain injury um, and a brain bleed. So I like even parts of that day are completely spotty.
0: It was a head-on collision. Is that correct?
1: Head-on 55 mile an hour.
0: Oh man. I'm surprised. I'm surprised shocked that you survived. I mean, most people don't survive head on collisions. That's, uh, amazing that you survived. How long were you? So when you woke up, was there a day that went by? How long of a period of time is that from you waking into this days of, um, um, a wreck? So as far as the police report goes, the accident happened around like
1: 325 AM, but there's phone calls that happened before that, that we ended up finding out about later on down the line. Um, But I had clocked out of work around one o'clock. So anywhere between one and 325 when it was actually reported is when this car accident happened. Um, And like I said, you can drive down that road and sometimes never pass the car. So there's really no telling. When the actual accident happened, um, I could have been sitting there for a while. My husband was a first responder. He was a fire captain, um, with JFRD. And when he arrived on scene, he thought that I was ejected from the vehicle, but they had to use the jaws of life to get me out of the car. Um, and by the way, this wasn't your
0: husband at the time.
1: No, it was not my
0: husband. At the <laughs> this <time. laughs> this is uh, this is the crazy thing about this story is is that the person who saved you out of this car was a fireman and this becomes a romance love story after the fact which I don't want to jump ahead but I find that just fascinating that he was yeah. at the scene of your accident and saving mm-hmm. you from your car. Yes,
1: yeah, definitely. Um but I, so he thinks that I was thrown from the vehicle. Obviously I have no recollection of that whatsoever, but I was covered in marsh mud. I had twigs and branches in my hair, but my vehicle was literally in the middle of the road. So there's no way that there would have been any dirt or whatever flung into the vehicle. Like there's no dirt on the tires, on the car or anything. Um, and what we ended up finding out years later a 911 call that had been buried in the mess um, was that the first person who called 911 actually witnessed my vehicle being hit by another car
2: Mm.
1: so what my attorney and what everyone kind of like compiled is that i probably was ejected from the vehicle climbed my way back to the car and then when i was hit by that second vehicle they probably clipped the door in so that way they wouldn't, I couldn't get out. Um, it's just crazy. Like I start having more of a recollection once I'm in the hospital. It's like spotty the whole time. Like I know that there was um, witness statements that like, I didn't even know whose car I was in. My kids' car seats were in the back seat, and they're like, are your kids here? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, it's just completely, I'm obviously out of my head because I've hit my head so hard in this car accident. My body's in shock because I've gotten all these injuries. I broke my back, um, my left So, arm Lark, were you confused. unconscious
0: or not unconscious when they came to you in your car? Were you out or were you uh, still? They had to
1: wake me up out of consciousness. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't conscious when the first um, witnesses came okay. to the scene. Okay. Okay. Um, so. And I woke up, like, I woke up and I'm like, who are you? There's people ever like yeah. two or I'm three sure people outside of the car.
0: Yeah. Adrenaline yeah, completely. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and especially like, I didn't even think I needed to go to the hospital when my husband came to the scene and he was like, okay, we're going to put you on this backboard. I'm like, no, I'm calling my mom and she's going to come get me. I'm, I'm terrified of hospitals. I'm not going. Mm-hmm. And, um, he's like, ma'am, look down at your arm, please look down at your arm and it's hanging off of my body
2: Oof.
1: so that's just kind of like where it all started I remember kind of the hospital ride um like the ambulance ride to the hospital it's real in and out I keep going back to sleep waking back up going back to sleep waking back up same thing going into the hospital not really understanding what's going on um are hit me with all kinds of different drugs and whatnot. So that's on top of me having a brain injury. I'm getting hit with all these different narcotics as soon as I walk in. Uh, I've lost so much blood that there are in blood transfusions. And it was just crazy, craziness. But my full memory doesn't come until later on that morning when my mom comes into the hospital room. And by that point, SHP's already been in there, JSO's already been in there. Um, And I had no idea that someone else had passed away in this car accident until my mom came into the hospital room around like 9 a.m. in the morning. Um, And mind you, everything's happening at like 3.30 in the morning is when the car accident, all the craziness of that is happening um so
0: your mom tells you that somebody died in the other car how did how do you even register that into your mind what was your reaction and how do you compute all that with all the other things that have happened in the last six hours
1: i think i like i just remember just instantly like my whole body was just convulsing. Like I couldn't believe that someone had passed away. I didn't even know that another vehicle was involved because when I had asked on the scene, hey, isn't it, like, is everybody okay? Is everybody okay? They were like, we don't even know where the other car is. There's mm-hmm. like, we don't see another vehicle. Um. So my whole time until my mom comes, I'm thinking that I'm the only person in this car accident. Like I must've hit a tree or something. Mm -hmm. Um, When I've asked my husband, he was like, all we're doing is we're worrying about you. When I'm being questioned by police, they're not really elaborating on what's happening. They're just kind of asking me where I came from, what I was doing. Um, Was there anything wrong with my vehicle? Um, So I had no idea. And then once my mom told me, it was like my whole world was just done. I couldn't believe it. Like, how do you compute a loss of life and then you don't even remember anything? Mm-hmm. Like, so you're in this twilight zone where you like wake up and you're like, oh my God, someone else died in this car accident. That's crazy. And then you have all those other thoughts of, well, why am I still here? Mm-hmm. Um, And it was just it was insane, and the hospital room that I was in had a TV in it, so, you know, first morning news, I made the morning news, and I'm on the news, and I'm like, oh, my God, oh my God. like, this is this is crazy. I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. I had been going in and out of surgery um, while I was in the hospital that day, so I didn't get to see all the news articles, which I'm, pro- I'm grateful for now, because mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. the media is definitely... Well, they create a, a narrative and they go
0: with it. And that's, you know, that's one thing about news is they, they go down a lane and that's their lane. And it, even if they get more information, they decide if they're going to use that information or not. When does right. when does it turn for you, Lark, that this is like coming at you in a different way than just having a car accident?
1: Um, About... Three days later, I'm still in the hospital. Um, Another FHP Uh, police uh, officer comes in. Okay. And um, they're telling me that my vehicle is going to be impounded and I'll never be able to get it back because it's in um, like heavy forensics for um, DUI manslaughter. And I'm like, (laughs) manslaughter? what are you talking about that's crazy um and they're like well we suspect that you were underneath the influence you were on your way home um from work and you had a wine bottle in your car and we think that you were under the influence we have an officer that said that you had bloodshot watery eyes in the hospital blah 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 whatever and i'm like and at this point, I don't know my rights. I've never been in trouble. I've never been pulled over by the police. I've never, yeah. nothing. I- yeah. <laughs> um, Blood,
0: bloodshot water, your so- eyes could also mean that you were in a head on collision and you just survived.
1: <laughs> Great. And I've been hit with so many narcotics, narcotics in the hospital right. that they hit me with Narcan twice because they overdosed me. Wow. So um, I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Well... Um, I then at that moment kind of shut down, deleted social media. Um, my mom's father is an attorney in Birmingham, Alabama. So he, um, was telling my mom, like all things to do, like make sure she's not on social media, make sure she like doesn't talk to anybody. So it's too late now because I've already given my blood for one in the hospital Mm -hmm. i've made a statement that you know all about me being whatever i didn't know my miranda rights at this point and you're asking me all these questions while i'm completely out of my mind Mm -hmm. and um so at that point i'm like oh i'm going to prison i have these two small kids my son's eight months old at the time my daughter's two what is going on? i'm completely injured i can't go to
0: but lark, go to the, deal like this. but lark if i remember from from what was told and your your attorney talked about is that there were two different blood alcohol content things that happened and um mm-hmm. one was different than the other was did do you i mean before you left work Do you even remember, did you have a drink or what was going on before you got to where you were going? Because your blood alcohol content was actually below the level of um, the legal limit in Florida. Mm -hmm. When they tested it in the hospital, it was different. But then I find out from the attorney that those hospital tests, as opposed to the other tests, those, those don't match. Most times, and I don't even understand how that all works, but you had two different blood alcohol content takes on one under, and I think one right mm-hmm. at it. So at that point, were you, I mean, did you have an, had you brought an attorney into the situation? And I guess it was the attorney that I saw that was talking about this case, because he said it's the case that stayed with him forever. Um, how did you get to him?
1: Okay, so um, my attorney, Louis Fusco. I've known him for a long time. He, I had a high school boyfriend who went to school with him and actually helped with one of his cases that he was going through. And uh, Lewis was actually not my first pick for an attorney. I went with another attorney first, and his name is Lee Hutton. And um. There's a, there's a backstory with that, too. Um, when I went to go see Lee Hutton about three months after the car accident, when I was finally released from the hospital and I was able to go and meet with these attorneys, um, when I was telling him the whole thing, he told me, hey, your toxicology isn't back yet. But if your toxicology is below the legal limit, like you're telling me um, that it's going to be, then they're not going to file charges you're going to be okay Okay. because um, at this point, I think, no, Derek's toxicology was not back at that point, so um, I'm like, okay, so my toxicology comes out the next week, and it's the legal blood, which was below the legal limit. Yeah. It was a 0.06 and a 0.058, um, so I take it back to Lee Hutton, and I'm like, hey, um, my I'm blood good. alcohol is below the legal limit. What's going on? There's no other drugs in my system, and he's like, "They're never going to charge you with this. You're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine." Okay. Um, I'm like, okay, cool. We're good. Well, I think like November or December, Derek's blood alcohol comes back, and it's a .15. And it has narcotics in his system. So I call Lee Hutton back and I'm like, Hey, um, update. Derek's toxicology was just uploaded to the FHP report. And it says this, and he's like, Hey, I just want you to know that, um, I can't represent you anymore because now I'm going to be basically second in command with the state attorney's office. Oh, wow. I'm like, Oh, great. Well, that would have been, you know, nice to know whenever that decision happened or whatever. Thank you because I've sat here and told you my entire case and now you're going to be sitting with the state attorney's office. That's wonderful. Thank you so much.
0: Lark, when you're saying, I think you're saying Derek, is that your, is that the, what are you referring to? That's the other driver. That's the other driver. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. Okay. I want to make sure because I, that's why I'm stopping you there. That guy who was driving the other car, I just want to make sure everybody yeah. understands this. That guy had a blood alcohol content of 0.15, uh-huh. and he had narcotics in his system. Okay. Yeah. I just want everybody who's listening to understand that was, had Sorry. nothing to do with your blood alcohol content. Yours is point oh six no. or 0.58, but his comes back at 0.15, and um, has narcotics in his system. This is the guy that died. Okay, yeah. just want to clear that up.
1: Yeah. Um, so when Mr. Hutton tells me that he can no longer be my attorney, I'm like, well, fuck. I need to go find someone else. So that's when Lewis popped up. Um, Lewis is a DUI attorney here in Jacksonville, and because I've had prior engagements with him I was like perfect we're gonna go with him and um so I call Lewis and give him the download on everything and um I still haven't been arrested for this I still haven't heard anything back from FHP I'm finding out these FHP reports on my own by like hounding them every day calling up at the office um and Lewis has never had a DUI manslaughter case so he's um very, um, this is, this is new to him. Okay. He's DUI. Yeah. Not DUI Helping people far. get
0: out of their DUIs. Right.
1: Right. And, um, well, at almost the year mark, I get a phone call from the corporal Everett, um, while I'm at work and he's like, Hey, you knew this day was coming. Um, I need you to come in for questioning. I'm like, okay okay, well let me have my attorney call you, let me get your phone number, whatever. Uh-huh. And he gives me a wrong phone number with a wrong. And this extension. is a this is a
0: year after the accident.
1: This is a year after the accident. Okay. So keep in mind for a whole year we haven't heard anything since day three of me being in the hospital. Nothing at all. Um so I'm in a panic. I leave work, I come straight home, I'm trying to get my life together, like calling a bondsman, making sure my attorney knows what's going on. Um, so Lewis is on it. And we don't really hear anything for like two or three days because Lewis can't get in touch with SHP. Like no one knows where this Corporal Everett is at. No one knows this extension that he gave me. Um, so I'm calling. Lewis is calling. Lewis's whole office is calling. The bondsman's calling. There is no bond there's no um warrant issued for me yet. Okay. And um, what is I'm the attorney what kitchen. does the attorney
0: find out? Does he find out any information?
1: He he's like, There's no there's no warrant. There's no okay. nothing's been put to the state attorney. All office. you have is this phone anything.
0: call. Okay.
1: There's just there's this mystery phone call. Okay. And um so Lewis is like just calm down, you're gonna be okay. If something happens, I've got you, we're gonna get you out, you'll be fine. Okay. Well, I'm sitting in my kitchen four days later, after the mysterious phone call, and lo and behold, FHP cruisers are coming down my driveway. And um they still don't have a warrant, but they take me anyway. So it's the whole thing's just crazy. It's insane. It's ridiculous. Um, but I get down to the state attorney's office. I sit in the patrol car for like an hour with no police officer in it because he's in the state attorney's office, um, I'm guessing, going and getting the warrant at this point. And he comes back in and um, takes me to booking. And
0: seems really odd they didn't have a warrant before they came down your place and to take you out. That's kind of backwards. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. tell me about it and then left me in a cruiser for about for an hour escort.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, in the front seat shackled in front yeah cruiser still running
0: what's going through your mind
1: um i'm petrified yeah i have never been in a position like this i've never been in handcuffs i've never been in a police cruiser other than like field trips or whatever right. you know um and
0: you haven't been able to call I, anybody that you've been taken away no okay
1: nope um so I am petrified and I get down to booking I get my phone call and they're on it I get out immediately um at this point me and my husband still aren't married but he is me and him are living together and Mm -hmm. we're in a full-blown relationship well he works for the fire department so you know he's got people everywhere friends everywhere so i'm being looked after and very well taken care of
0: and he was at the scene of your accident
1: right he's the state's like main witness yeah um so i get out and that's when the the ball starts to roll with my case right because i'm petrified and i'm i'm an organized mess So I want to have my hands in on everything. And knowing that Lewis hasn't had a DUI manslaughter case, I want to make sure that nothing's missed. No detail goes awry. And we start getting discoveries and we're diving into this and it's crazy. We're like, how the how? why is the state even pushing so right, hard why are they right now it, right. what is really going on we find out that um Derek had a lifetime suspension on his driver's license since 1989 um that's longer than i've been alive um he had been pulled over for 75 driving infractions after that suspension of his driver's license um, there's anywhere between five to 15 DUIs. We had to get a private investigator to, um, bury out these arrest and booking reports because when we were going on to, um, our clerk of court think everything was redacted. Like everything was redacted. It Mark, was ridiculous.
0: What, I'm, th- you know, th- that when I was listening to your attorney talk about this case, was he going to, Asking the other side, like what, why, knowing the past history of this person that died, why are you going after this girl, um, knowing what you know? I mean, what, was there any conversations that were going back and forth that that were making any sense?
1: Um, I'm sure I didn't really um dive into like the discussions between lewis and the state i kind of stayed out of that um but i know the family was pushing really hard for it and i i understand i can understand to an extent like i don't know what it's like to have my dad or my brother or whatever ripped and torn away from me in a car accident like leaving the house one day and then all of a sudden not being able to see that person ever again so I can understand like the hurt and the devastation behind it um, it's the family was pushing for it very hard um, but they were also pushing for a civil suit against the hotel that I was working for mm-hmm. um, so ultimately I believe that this was more of a political pool than
0: anything. Um, well, let's fast forward a little bit because you, you get into this mess. Um, your attorney's dealing with this as a first time deal with a manslaughter. Um, how long does this process take for you? Because I feel like when I've talked to you, it was a long process.
1: Yeah. So the gonna happened May 29th of 2016. I get arrested May of 2017 and I go for pretrial hearings for two years after that. And then I'm finally um, found guilty in May of 2019 and remanded in the custody then.
0: So we're talking about four years, Is that three, three years. So yep. three years of this, um, as you, do, you continue to gather all this discovery and all these different things that go on, there is another thing that comes in that, that they took the blood from the hospital and so that's what they're running with even though that they've got the, the true test, uh, mm-hmm. the legal test, the legal test was the .06 or the .58. When you get to trial, um, first of all, how long does this trial last?
1: Um, it was a
0: four-day trial. Four-day trial. Did, mm-hmm. did you feel like because I don't get to talk to too many people that go to trial because it seems like everybody that I talk to ends up plea they're pleading out their, their uh, situation. You went to trial. Did you feel like in that trial that things were going your way or did you feel like, Oh my God, this is going to be a disaster. And, and I've, I've got this horrific thing to look forward to. What like what was the trial like?
1: So for the first two days um, of trial, we felt, Good. We didn't feel great, but we felt good about the situation. Now, mind you, um, a lot of my evidence was not admissible. Um, So I'm going in a trial kind of like with my hands tied behind my back. I want to Um, talk about that. I
0: want to talk about that, Lark, because that's the biggest part of this whole thing with your, it comes out that the judge rules that his, blood alcohol c- content and his history of what he had was not admissible in this case, mm-hmm. which I find absolutely just jaw dropping because how that affects what happened that night is all the difference in the world. I, I don't know how in the world it wasn't admissible. I don't know how all these legal things happen, but that not being the situation and them running with two different um, blood alcohol content, the jury not knowing the other side at all, I can't imagine what you were thinking walking into this thing. With the biggest part of the defense for you, not to be able to be even discussed.
1: Yeah. So um, pretrial hearings, I have Judge Healy as my judge, and they call him "hang him, hang them high," Healy. He is like hard core. He was also the judge that did the Michael Brown trial here in Florida. Yeah. Um, maybe that's his name. I probably I remember you talking about it. Those...
0: the national story because um, yeah, there, there the, was a Michael Brown in St. Louis too that that went through. Oh a, yeah. yeah. Was...
1: Um. So my first day walking in the court, and I see him. I'm like, oh my gosh! And everyone's talking about how terrible it is, whatever. So we file these motions to try to get some of the stuff in because when you're going to trial that's what free trial is all about is getting everything into the trial Mm -hmm. so first was the medical records. so there's two different kinds of blood tests your blood your legal blood test is done by whole blood which means they take those into account all of your blood cells that get pulled um and it's done Specifically, there is specific wipes that they use. There's a specific needle that they use. There's specific, everything is completely controlled. Your medical blood is not. Your medical blood is done by blood plasma, which is a higher concentration of your blood cells. Um, And they wipe you down with alcohol wipes. They use a different size needle. Um, there is no chain of custody
0: um a variety of differences and
1: variety so my whole my medical blood was right at the legal limit yeah. right but it's blood plasma so you actually have to like times it divide it add subtract, and then you get the results of what the whole blood would be. And that's why you need a toxicologist in this whole case, because it's complete. The number that it is, is completely different than what the whole blood number would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they did that, it ended up being just below the legal limit, even with the medical blood, I think it was like a point zero seven nine, mm-hmm. which is still below Under the, the legal limit. limit. Yeah. Um, So we're pushing to get this medical blood dismissed Mm -hmm. because it just it's prejudicial. When a jury is hearing that, they're like, "Oh well, I mean, it does say that it's over the legal or what? It's close, and it was an hour after the car accident, so she had to be drunk at the time." So my attorney is fighting. We are fucking. We have probably filed eight or nine different motions against this medical blood because who? Listening to a toxicologist for four hours in a courtroom, a jury's going to get bored listening to that, and they're going to come up with their own mm-hmm. notion. Um, well, deny everything that we filed was denied. Well, our last one that we push for is for um, Derek's history, his um, blood alcohol level at the time of the accident, and the previous the drugs that were in his system to be allowed to be told during um, trial. And it was
0: denied. denied.
1: Here's, Completely the, thing. here's the thing that I denied.
0: Here's the thing that I think is so interesting about it is let's just say that you were at, we're at the legal limit of 0.08 or maybe you were a little bit over 0.08.' just give that up. The fact that he was at 0.15, how can you assume whose accident caused, who caused the accident because no one was at the scene? You know, I find it just absolutely fascinating that a judge could listen to this. Yes, somebody died. You could have died. Um, But the fact that his blood alcohol content was so much more, and he had a, a history, a like papered history of this so he denies it all you go into the trial the jury comes out and you are convicted and then you have jury members after the well first of all i want to talk about like what what did you what were you thinking that day when the jury came back out and they said what they said
1: um up to so this I've point, you haven't devastated. even been
0: ever involved in anything legal. Uh, you, you were in a bad car accident, coming home from work at mm-hmm. 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. Now you are standing before a jury that is going to say you're either innocent or guilty, and you're, you're going to be looking at prison time. What, when they came back and they said you were guilty, what, how did you react to that news?
1: I was devastated. Um, when we got the phone call to return back to court, I kind of already had it in my head because the verdict came back so quick, Mm -hmm. like my attorney was like, Hey, look, if they take like an hour, two hours, it's probably not going to be a good thing. Mark." So when we got the phone call, it was, I think a little bit over an hour. I was like, Oh, well. My kids were at the attorney's office, so I'm telling them, I'm like, hey, look, um, you guys are all you you have. Like, I need you guys to get along and I need you to be strong and I need you to know that I love you no matter what. And uh, I need you to be strong for each other. Mm. So I leave the office and we walk back to the courtroom and I get in the courtroom and my, um, the clerk that's in there, she's so, she's so sweet, phenomenal woman and um she obviously knows the entire yeah. Yeah. situation because she's been typing she's recorded, yeah. transcribing the whole thing from the from 3 years prior right yeah. so she knows what the jury doesn't know yeah and she's looking at me and i can just see it on her face you sense it I'm like, oh gosh oh gosh well the jury comes out and they find me guilty and, um, you can like, sh- the clerk was devastated and she's kept up with me the entire time that I've been mm-hmm. incarcerated and actually was like texting my attorney before I was coming home. Like, you know, Lark's about to be home. Like, mm-hmm. um, and you could just like feel it in the courtroom cause I had so many people with me, like. Everyone's just disappointed, but we kind of knew it was going to happen because of the way the evidence was set up. Sure. Um, and I can't. You had a blame lot of defeats jury.
0: before you ever got into that courtroom,
1: right? Yep. And I, like, I, I really can't blame the jury for coming up with the verdict that they did with what with was what presented do. to them. Yep. Um and i lost it in the courtroom this is like so the entire time that i'm i'm being the, the good person right i go to court every time that i'm supposed to my attorney has signed a waiver that i don't even have to appear in court but i'm going i'm going once a week i'm going in the courtroom i'm making sure i'm there i'm being right. you know i'm trying to be everything as perfect as i can be right and i lost it when are they i look the judge left, the jury left. I looked at the state attorneys and I gave them a piece of my mind. Because at this point, I haven't talked to you at all. I have been respectful, but I feel like you have just taken my whole life away from me and you know what you did mm-hmm. because you're the one who obviously is on the other side of this chair. You know all the evidence in front of you and you still came at me the way you did. And I lost it. Um,
0: Understandably.
1: Yeah, definitely. But it bit me in the butt later on. Um,
0: so you just Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: I. They take me. I'm remanded into custody immediately, and I'm freaking out. Right? I've no, I, The little bit of time that I spent in booking was nothing compared to me walking in here and thinking that I'm going to be in here for at least. 10 years because that's what the state was pushing for and I'm not going to walk back out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What? That's crazy. I was freaking out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine. I know it's it had to be uh, it, it. I know what it feels like to walk into the unknown and you were walking into the worst unknown because you never planned on this and now you're dealing with And you haven't been sentenced yet. So how long did you have to wait for the sentencing?
1: Um, It was about three weeks until sentencing. And during that time, um, there was just like a lot of soul searching, you know. Um, When people go to prison, you find God or whatever. I knew God before I went in there. And I was angry with God when I got to prison. Like, this is this is crazy. I I go to church every Sunday. I go to Bible study every Wednesday. I'm in my women's group. I go to Panera Bread with all my girls every week. I'm a devout Christian. Yeah. I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing.
0: Why this happen why? to me?
1: Why, yeah. why why why? Why am I going through this right now? I don't understand what's happening. This I'm angry. Mm. I'm very angry with God at this point. And um but He was definitely showing me a lot of grace while I was in that three-week stretch. Me and the children of my father, my father's of my children were going through it just horribly. He was sitting with the victim's family. Like, it was really bad. Feeding the state attorney, it was so bad. But he was trying to get custody of my kids. And we had been going through custody battles since before um, I had. So you had all that going on also. Right. Well, during that three weeks of me getting sentenced, my judge ended up ex-naying his custody and all he got was weekend visitations. And my mom was granted guardian at Lidham. So I still had primary custody, but Thank my God. mom was able to make like medical decisions. So definitely God was still working and I wasn't seeing it at the time, but now I do looking back. Well, when I go in for sentencing, um, my husband is my rock, right? He has gotten all of these letters from all of my friends, family, community members, the fire department, the police department, mm-hmm. um and has all my family fly in cuz mind you, I'm from New Orleans so not, not a lot of my family lives here in Florida. So we've got my my aunt from Texas is flying in. I, everyone's there. Everybody so when I walk heart. into the room and I see this group of people that haven't been in the same room since I was little mm-hmm. was amazing. And I have all these letters of recommendation. All these people are getting up and saying um, wonderful things. And um, I had won my downward departure. So. I knew walking in that I was probably not going to look at the whole time. Um, but the state was still pushing for maximum, even after hearing all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got up and, you know, I don't want to say this and make it seem like I'm an evil person, um, cause I'm not, and I've met some wonderful ladies in prison that are DUI manslaughter as well, who have the exact same feelings as I do. I do not feel responsible for my car accident. There is a level of remorse that I have for Derek, right? Mm. Because it's a loss of life. And I am devastated that someone lost their life in this car accident. But I can't say that I'm the one who caused it. So getting up and speaking to the family and letting them know, like, God, I'm devastated that Derek's no longer here. And I don't know how that feels to have somebody like that taken away from me. Um, And I'm expressing this to the family and crying and just, it was bad. Well, I got sentenced and I was graced five years in. Six years out. Two of those six years, I'm on house arrest, um, and I'm almost at the end. I mean, I'm done with my five year bid.
0: <laughs> so let's let's talk about this because uh, I mean, five years is five year sentence is, is you know you going into prison because you know that that is you were entering that world that you knew you were going to have to live in for a while. How did you, how did you handle it?
1: Um, so in the beginning, it's rough. I think any, any time that you go into a situation like that, um, especially not being, I've n- never went to juvenile or dealt with anything like that. So it's a different world behind those gates.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you have hierarchy, you have,
0: you're uncomfortable
1: because yeah you're uncomfortable you are surrounded by all kinds of different walks of life you are having to do do things that you've never done before like taking showers with groups of people or using the bathroom in front of other people like that's terrifying when you first walk in and and i was young i was young um I'm growing up in the system at this point mm-hmm. and at first when you're in your RNO camp which is like your orientation camp you're there for three months and it's terrible because you're there with people who have short sentences or people who are going in for life but it's all brand new to people prison people. So it's gross. It's disgusting. People are in high, high emotions there. And we're all women. Yeah. So Right. Like like, yeah. terrible. Like my second night there, I saw some stuff that no one should ever see. Um, but once I got to the camp that I was, um, permanently placed at, I flourished. Um, and I know that God had me there at that time, at that season, for a reason. I was in a vocation, so I did horticulture, and I graduated with a nursery management degree, and I worked in the greenhouse, and then being in the greenhouse, our warden was outside all the time, and he saw me, and, um, we were able to, like, small chat or whatever and um one of his cooks was ending her sentence so he was like hey have you ever cooked or you know done anything culinary wise and i was like yeah i cook at home all the time (laughs) so i started cooking (laughs) i started cooking in the cafe and that's like the top of the food chain in prison when you're able to eat what you want um and political wise, like I'm in there with the warden. I'm in there with, you know, i I know the right people in order to make my time yeah. go easily.
0: Yeah. Um, and, it, and it helps to eat up your time, uh, too when you have something that you're focused on, like a, a job, a prison job that you feel like you're getting, like you're working nice. in the garden, you're cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, Lark, how did you handle hard days in prison? What was your um, escape?
1: We have tablets here in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, so like getting underneath the blanket and kind of like plugging into a podcast or a movie. And by or the way, you'll probably
0: like that you are, uh, will be plugged into that tablet because uh, it's on the Adovo platform that goes into 275 prisons. So we get thousands of listens a month on stories just like yours.
1: Oh wow, that's amazing.
0: Yeah, I love it because it's full you know it's full circle for me you know I, I, I was always you know looking at you know what could I listen to? We only had I was in a federal prison so they didn't have tablets, but you know it was like what can I listen to? what can I you know what can I read whatever but uh, what I like about this is, is that these people who are listening to this that are in prison, they're seeing that people survive and that they they're making it uh, they're breaking the narrative. And so, anyway, I, I didn't mean to throw you off track there, but when you said that about the tablets, that's one of the things that uh, I really enjoy about doing the podcast because your story is going to be in there.
1: Yeah, and that's that's amazing because when we got to listen to some podcasts while we were in there, that, um, you know, the Real Vita podcast and all those other yeah. ones, that was like our. Florida is just now starting to get into um podcasts, so every month we get like a new sure. little one on. It. Yeah. So that was definitely So that was
0: an escape for you to, to kinda get away. Yeah.
1: Definitely. Or being in the garden. Yeah. Being a garden girl at Gadsden, you were able to get out of the dorm anytime that you wanted. All you had to do was say, Hey, I'm about to go back to the I'm about to go back to the garden, so that so, Lark- the dorm was unruly. You were able to get
0: out. Yeah, able to get out, and that's that's a big deal because it's it's hard to feel like you have your own personal time in prison because it's I've had so many people tell me like it's the loneliest crowded place I've ever been because you 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 do make connections but you don't for the most part you're with those people all the time. And if you have a way to get away, that does kind of give you a chance. I used to walk a lot, and you know that was just kind of a way to just kind of feel like me. But your your kids and your husband, um, your mom, whatever the case was, I know you had support in that. How did your how did your kids or what did your kids know, and how did how did you guys work through that because they were young.
1: Definitely, they were young when the car accident happened. Again, Isaiah was eight months, and Sky was about two years old. Um, so I have always been completely open and honest with my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, in this day and age, social media, the internet, like I come home and my kids have laptops for school. Yeah. So I always knew that. I didn't want to lie to them and say, oh, mommy's going to go to work for a while because at the end of the day, they're going to get on this Internet and they're going to look it up. All you have to do is type in Lark Hodge and my sure. mugshot shot comes up. Right. Um, so I've, they they've always known mommy was in a car accident. It was an accident at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And mommy has to go away for a little bit. Um, but I'm, I'm here. I'm still your mom. I'm still dealing with schoolwork or dealing Mm -hmm. with behavior problems that we're having doctors visits and whatnot, just through the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Now in the beginning of my prison sentence, I called home all day, every day. Right. I (laughs) I feel like I want to be home all day, but it was really debilitating to my mental health and to theirs. Um, once I started realizing like they would get on the phone, but they wouldn't say anything I'm like, okay, I'm going to call like once a week so that they're able to like, be able to tell me all the fun things that they've done this week. Because when I call them, I'm interrupting their playtime. They don't want anything to do with mom on that note. Yeah. Um, but I was in prison during COVID. So our visits were limited, null and void for like a year and a half. And when we finally started getting visits back, they were behind um, a it- plastic screen and it was terrible so Damn. I went a while without my kids coming uh but there at the end they were coming like two times a month and Gaston's pretty good about their like mother child bonding they have a playroom they have a playground outside they have board games in there the officers are a different demeanor than mm-hmm. they are behind the gate as mm-hmm. they are in VP and um we had a Sesame street event um, right before I left mm-hmm. and my kids were able to like interact with the girls that I'm in prison with, with face paintings and they got their nails done and play doh, And it was just, it was, it was a really wonderful experience. And I think it was, it was a good thing for my kids to see that at the end of my um You're there journey four and a half because, years
0: and you know, yeah. I, really proud of you, Lark, on how you handled it because you could have, I talk about this a lot, you could have become the victim mentality that this shouldn't have happened to me. And I think when you take that mentality, you kind of it takes away all your strength and you you know crawl up in a fetal position and, and kind of give up. You didn't do that at all. you, you went the other way. you, you said, I'm going to survive this, your family stayed together. You, you found yourself away in prison with people and jobs and keeping yourself focused. And I think that helps so much for your, your, you know, your mental capacity, but I also think it helps when you get out because you haven't wasted time. You've used time to get through your time and it gives you, I think a sense of confidence that I'm going to, if I can survive this, I can survive anything. And you know, there's only two people, in you know, the, the greatest, you know, line in Shawshank Redemption is you get busy living or get busy dying. That's kind of prison. You you have two mm-hmm. types of people in prison: the ones that have given up, and you see them; they've given up, and you see the other ones trying to make whatever work work and adapt to it. And I think that's what you did. And I think it's so interesting because your story is um, totally unplanned. I mean, how? Who knows what's going to happen in the middle of the night? You get hit by a car and um, all of a sudden your your world spirals into a world you never thought and then you're in prison for four and a half years. But your attitude of that, and I think your kids will see that, that, hey, mom, she stood strong.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I'm not saying that there wasn't like times that I was ready to jump the cliff. <laughs> Everybody definitely. has that.
2: Everybody okay. has it.
1: There were definitely those times, but I tried to maintain positive attitude because at the end of the day, if you have an EOS date, you're getting out and you're going home home. and the world is, is crazy and it's chaotic, but you have to make the best out of it. And
0: and I think you I almost have to do mind hacks to keep yourself out of the, you know, I, when you're yeah. talking there, you're reminding me of my world when I had a calendar that my youngest daughter made every year and I would write every night in that calendar box of that day. And I would try to find my win for the day. And people would say, yeah. how do you find a win in prison? But you can, and you might, I might've had a good conversation with my girls you know, something might've happened good. I got forklift certified or something at the food whatever it was. But I also knew that if I had a bad day, I actually let myself go all the way down bad. Like I'm having a no good, very bad day. But I, my mind hack was, is I wouldn't allow myself to fill in, fill in two boxes of bad because I felt like if I did that, that that's the slippery slope. If I can't bring myself back up, that next day I'm in an environment that I could actually slide down a path that it's a bad week, a bad month, a bad year. And then you are on the other side of not the one that's surviving and, and adapting and, and getting through. So I think that that's the other part of surviving Lark is that you have to kind of figure it out as you go along. And it's good, bad, ugly, but one way or the other, you figure it out.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you made it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean? It, as you were getting close to the door, what were you thinking? Cuz I mean, four and a half years is is a decent amount of time. What was going through your mind like oh, I am getting ready to get once you see your name up there that you're going to be released. What were you thinking?
1: I was so ready to go. Um my last year was my last 9 months was terrible i feel like i had been taken out of the garden and had been put in this drug rehab program because with dui manslaughter you're mandated to do that so from going and being able to be in the kitchen and being out in the garden all day to being in this drug rehab program was terrible but when i tell you that Gadsden is where they send most of the dui manslaughter cases here in florida and I was able to form such a network of women that were going through the exact same emotions that I've been going through. And I heard one woman say, like, she was like, I have thought that I was a monster for so long until I met other women who were DUI manslaughter. And if I can't look at them like a monster, Then I can't look at myself like that Mm, anymore. That's deep. And that resonated so deeply. And I think when you have a charge that has an accidental death involved in it, you need to have that network of people that have the same exact emotions that you have. Because at the end of the day, no one is going to know what dui manslaughter feels like except for someone else who has been through that exact same thing and i'm not saying all of our cases are the same you have women that were like quadrupled the legal limit and ran into a school bus with six kids in the back and then you have people like me where there was another woman in there that um was below the legal limit and she um was in a head-on collision with um a motorcycle couple and it She is so broken from it. And I pray that one day that she'll like find her purpose and be able to like live with herself on that. Mm -hmm. But it's people like that. Like I want to be able to lift her up and let her know that at the end of the road, it's going to be okay. And you're going to be able to live for your kids and your husband and, and everything else that is available to you out here in this real world. So even though that nine months and that drug rehab program was like the worst thing that I've ever went through in my life, I can definitely pick pieces out of it that I Got know that it. I was supposed to be there at that time because I could not imagine going the rest of my life without knowing that there is that network of yeah. women that I can always reach back out to and be like, Hey, are you feeling okay today? Yeah. Like,
2: It's your own support network.
1: um, Definitely. And that same girl who was in that motorcycle accident, we had at Gadsden a motorcycle event, right? And they brought out big motorcycles and put them out on the yard. And when she went there, like, all of the DUI manslaughter girls surrounded her and were like, are you okay? Because these motorcycles, like, are you doing okay mentally? Are you able to handle this? And it was just so beautiful to be able to see people surround someone that she thinks she's a monster still mm-hmm. and she doesn't think that people should love her because of what she's done and that's not it at the end of the day it's it's an accident
0: yeah that's right so you got out august 20th mm-hmm. um, what's life been like for you in the last month and a week or so
1: Oh, so I came like head first into being a mom because yeah. I got out on Sunday, my kids were in school on Monday. So I woke up 530 in the morning, getting them ready for school, taking them to school. Um, and then I had to sign in with probation and meet my probation officer and I'm on house arrest. So I have to fill out forms every week. I have to completely let him know what I'm doing hour by hour It has to be approved. Um, I am trying to figure out this whole license situation because in the state of Florida, our laws are so like the word or is in there so many times that (laughs) statutes are so messed up because with DUI manslaughter, you can apply for your hardship if you have had your license revoked for five years or from your last date of incarceration. (laughs) So we're trying to juggle this because my license has been revoked for five years now. Yeah. I'm ready for a hardship. Right. Um, so dealing with that, um, and I live out in the middle of nowhere. So not having a vehicle is really just.
0: Yeah, you're really on house arrest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. And my husband, he retired from the fire department, um, in 2019. So after I, um, went in and he ended up, going out and working on an oil rig as a paramedic so he's going to go out on his first boat trip while i've been home and so that's going to be interesting in a couple of weeks um but i'm just trying to get this business off the ground with this farming um and it's exciting to see like when i went in people weren't really all that into the whole like home gardening thing and i guess since covid and the grocery stores not really having it it's it's (laughs) booming and so we have two cows that are being pinned right now out of our 11 that are going to be processed soon so we'll be able to um sell that and then when the fall garden starts i'll start selling the vegetables and canning and everything and we're really interested in getting into this microgreens thing because it's like that's a booming industry.
0: Yeah.
1: Um so and it's something that I love and it's something that I was able to accomplish while I was in prison. Exactly. Like you
0: you got to practice up in there on that. that. Yeah. I love it.
1: Yeah.
0: What do you think? What do you think, Lark, after you've gone through all this and and survived, what do you think is your biggest takeaway through all of it?
1: Um, I just think that we all have a purpose. And even when we go through the worst and you think that you're just, there's nothing that can happen out of what you're going through, I promise you that there's something good there's something good that's going to come out of the bad and it might take five seven ten years down the line for you to figure out what it was but i promise you that (laughs) out of that bad there is something good
0: i love that I think that's a great way to end it because that is such a great answer because so many people are looking for that. People who are stuck thinking that they can't get to the next step, but that they've dealt with this nightmare. How can I ever survive? And you're saying you can, and there's some good things that come from it and they can blossom into other opportunities like you're doing with the farming. I love it, Lark. I love how you've handled things. I love your attitude. Um, I just, I hope, you know, Nothing but great things for your husband, your kids, and you, and you've, you've earned your way through surviving this uh, nightmare, and I, it's so great to see you on the other side of it. Um, and talking about uh, if anybody got anything out of this today, and I know you did because it's a great story of, of how to get through things, um, leave a review on Apple that'd be great. I know it's a hassle, but it really puts the show on steroids. Um, follow the show. It's easy on Spotify, you hit the bell. Uh, and, and uh, on Apple, you just, uh, hit the three, three bars up there. It drops down, follow. If you want to know any more about what's going on with me, go to brentcasty.com. It's with a T Y and out of D Y. And, uh, as I used to say when I was uh, writing my emails back and forth from prison, stay strong and I'll do the same. Lark, thanks so much for being with us today. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me
0: nightmare success in and out.